you know, it's who you know, it's not what you know, is what people say. And I think that's so true. Welcome to Destiny Benders. This is episode four of season two. Can you believe it, Girish? I can't. It's been so exciting and a lot of unique people so far. I'm really looking forward to chatting with Simone today. I don't know her. I've never met her. So thank you for lining her up. Well, you know what? And we were just talking before we started recording about guests we could have on the podcast. And what I find really exciting is thinking about all these people that we have heard of or know of who we like the work that they're doing. We're inspired by them and that we can ask to be on our podcast. <laughs> I'm really excited about all the potential and the possibility that's that's out there really for guests. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about is that we want to hear from the audience as well, right? I mean, we're picking these guests and we're asking all these questions. We're having these conversations, but sometime soon, we should somehow get some feedback from the audience to see what they like, what they'd like to see more of. Maybe we could do something like that. Yeah, it's a good idea, actually. Yeah, we should. We should. Because, as we said in season one, this podcast is for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators. So, yeah, why don't you get in touch? If you're listening to this and you have an idea for our podcast or you'd like to be a guest, reach out to us. Yeah, destinybenders.com. That's our website. So, all right, well, let's get to Simone. Hello, and welcome back to Destiny Benders. Today, I'm really excited to present our guest, Simone Wrench, who's a colleague of mine at The Pi. She's the search director and insight manager, and she's also the person who set up the Business Women in Education Network. Simone, welcome to Destiny Vendors. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Hi, Simone. It's great to meet you. And, you know, I was saying earlier, I love having guests on the podcast who I have never met because that means I'm going to learn a lot about them. So, I know you and Jessica know each other. Tell us about who you are, how you got to do what you're doing right now. So I always get this question of, you know, where are you from? I think it's common when you live in a a country and they can tell your accent's a bit different. So I'm Danish, but by the end of, by the age of 10, I moved to Thailand with my dad. My mom moved initially, but then she left um, to move back to Denmark. So I went to an international school in Thailand until I was 17. I then moved to Denmark to live with my mom again and then when it came to finding a university um it was a bit where can I go I can go to the US UK or Australia because my Danish is really bad (laughs) so I chose the UK because it was quite close to Denmark um and when it came to you know choosing what to study I, I was I guess I was academic but I didn't want to be because in my international school I was like the only blonde Um, And I kind of took that role on a little bit, (laughs) that kind of weird role. But I had a journalism class. um, And as with this international school, it was really small. It was like 200 students from the age of three to 18. So the teachers really got to know you as well. And I was really fortunate. I think that even the principal could see that I really enjoyed um, journalism. So I got to take like creative writing classes, journalism classes. I was the editor of the yearbook. So I kind of knew that I wanted to be a journalist. So that's what I studied in the UK. But then when I was studying journalism, my last year, because I did really well in my course and I did really well academically, I was like, maybe I want to do a master's. Maybe I want to go work for the UN and save the world. Because, you know, I grew up in Thailand. I knew I was really fortunate. My dad was very keen to every year take me out to like villages and see how fortunate I actually was. 
so I did a human rights degree and about two months in I think I realized I definitely wanted to be a journalist <laughs> so I finished the course but went straight into journalism um, and initially I didn't I, I mean I never really thought about the fact that international education was a sector because I was just I guess a student right and I hadn't thought about the fact that that was a thing so my first job was writing about public finance so I wrote about public sector accounting standards <laughs> and um, I mean I did write about the SDGs because I was an international reporter so that was quite interesting I went to the World Bank I went to the you know I went to Paris for work when I was like 21 so it's quite nice but then, you know, a few years in, needed to move to the next step in my career because journalism isn't, you don't necessarily move that quick within an organization. Um, and someone I studied journalism with had just been promoted and I saw it on LinkedIn and I love LinkedIn because of these kind of things. And he'd been promoted for, at this magazine called Education Investor. So I messaged him and said, oh, long time, no talk. How are you? I saw you promoted. Well done. Um, are you going to give me a job now? Like as a joke. And he then said, actually, we are hiring a deputy editor. Are you interested? So that's kind of how it happened that I, you know, became a journalist focusing on education, at least. As it's in the title of the magazine, it was very investment focused. So it was very much private equity, venture capital, but it was really big education companies. And most of those are international of nature. Yeah, I think that's at least where I went into international education, I guess, and how I became a journalist. Wow, that's uh, an interesting journey. Not very typical of somebody that we see in the field, as we call it. But, you know, we're all accidental international educators. So I want to dig in a little bit about your career writing about investment in education, especially in light of everything that's happening currently in the international education space. You, you're probably reading all about these acquisitions that are happening and a lot of money coming in to especially at tech world. So can you tell us a little bit more from your perspective as a former journalist working in that field? What do you see? What's happening? Where do you think this is headed? Is this another bubble? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think how investors see it is that there's always going to be students. There's always going to be parents that want to pay for education because you want the best for your children. And that's kind of, you know, you realize that. I mean, I pay 85 pounds a day for nursery, right? <laughs> and that's because it's London, but it's like you just do it because... You want the best for your child. And I think that's what investors are seeing. I, I think it's going to last because there's always going to be parents that want the best international schools. Well, there's always going to be expats, right? So especially K-12, it's just a growing market and, you know, it's competitive. So it's a business. But I think it's interesting. I mean, what I always found really interesting and after I started writing about this kind of stuff, I remember like starting and being given a list of names to reach out to. You know, 10% of senior roles within private equity firms are filled by women. So it's very male dominated. Like it's very male dominated. So I got this list and it was mostly men. And I remember going to my editor who had studied with, you know, and he was my age. And I went, uh, where are the women? Like it's education. I had female teachers. There must be women here. And he was like, no, that's just what the sector is like. Don't question it. And I um, would go to events that were investment focused and private sector focused and it would be you know 75% men in the room and that's where my career did shift slightly so I was kind of hired to be deputy editor and write about you know what was going on in the sector and we did a lot of features at the time because this was pre-covid we actually had a magazine which was scrapped <laughs> um but you know I'd write about green international schools and 
British schools going to Japan and all these kind of things. But because there was this gender gap, I kind of moved into that slightly. So I launched this Business Women in Education Network in 2019, right before the pandemic, within the company I worked with. And it was really interesting because I think with that, you'd get a different crowd in the room. So the events, you know, that I would go to where it's investors talking about education, their focus is how much money can we make? And it would be if it die, if it die, if it die. And I was like, it's so boring. <laughs> um, but you would get, I organized events where it was still the private sector and it was still investors. But because it was a different audience and different speakers, the, the focus was more, how do we add value? You know, and it was, how do we do the best for the sector and improve access to education and all this other interesting stuff that wasn't just about how much money can we make quickly. And I think that is the thing in private equity because it is relatively short term, right? From someone invests to the exit is not a lot, like it's not even a decade. So they want to see results really, like quite quickly. And when you get the investment, you want to tell them that you can achieve all this stuff quickly. And I think that's what sometimes it goes south right because they need to achieve numbers very quickly and it might not be the way that they had initially initially like planned to grow I think there's like the two sides I haven't written about investment specifically for a while because my job changed and then I had a baby and I was away and when my job when I came back from maternity leave I basically became head of um, this business women education network so I focused on that completely I have a question for you and I want to to go back. I'm kind of putting parallels in my head as you're chatting. Mm -hmm. You were doing your journalism role and the lack of women at the events led you to form the Business Women in Education. But you were also mentioning how when you were in Thailand as a student at an international school, your father would take you to places and, and to do things in Thailand to... Um, I guess, open your eyes and really broaden your perspective outside of that privileged international school environment that you were in, which led you then to think you might want to be a human rights lawyer. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's a theme here. You somehow end up seeing something or experiencing something that strikes you as an inequality in some way, and you want to do something to fix it, <laughs> it sounds like, or do what you can to, to see how you can help add value, as you said, to the situation. When you were at university and you went to study your master's degree in human, I was human rights law, human I think rights. you said? Just yeah. human rights. Just human rights. Yeah. What what was it, though, that then made you, you said two months into it, you didn't want to continue? What was it then that happened that you decided this isn't for me? And, you know, we all have experiences like that. I mean, I don't think there was a specific point. I think it was that, I mean, part of why I wanted to be a journalist was that I, you know, wanted to change the world, essentially. When I was like 16 and I had journalism in, I was like, I can change the world because all these people can read what I'm saying and then you can, you know, give them ideas to do something. Um, and I think the reason I then decided to do a master's was because at the time, most of the job offers going around were from the Daily Mail and the Express. And it was tabloid papers. And I was like, I did, you know, an internship that was writing lists and, you know, 10, 10 dog pictures you have to see today. And I was like, that's not really going to change lives. <laughs> so in my head, I think it was just, well, I did really do well academically during university so maybe I needed to do something more academic so I applied to go to you know study human rights at different universities I got accepted to UCL 
Um, and I remember having this conversation with the head of the journalism department at the time, because you study journalism, then you go work. And that's kind of what most people do unless you change career paths completely. But I remember her saying something like, you know, you pay for the name and it's a good name to have on your CV. So going to UCL is never going to be a bad thing. And in my head at the time, I was like, well, if the options are working for a tabloid newspaper where I have to write about what celebrities look like and what clothes they wore or, you know, maybe politics, but it wouldn't be from the angle that I would want to write, then maybe I want to do media communications instead. So it was always with that hat on that I would still do communication or media. So in my human rights degree, I did do law, but I never thought, oh, I'm going to go be a lawyer. I mean, looking back, I'm like, I think I'll actually enjoy it. But it was never something I even thought about. And I think after a few months of studying, it was very much, you know, we studied what the institutions looked like, like human rights institutions and how the courts work. And I was like, that's not going to, I'm not going to make a difference in that. Like, I'm going to end every meeting with a new meeting. And that's not what I want to do. So that's why I decided to go back into journalism. But that's also where I realized that maybe I should go into something more specific or like B2B, which at the time when I was doing my undergrad, I just hadn't even thought about that. You, I thought you'd go work for a newspaper, right? Or like the BBC or something like that. I've always known I was really fortunate. And I think it was because my parents split up. So as I said, we moved to Thailand together when I was 10. My parents split up after six months. So my mom lived in Denmark. My dad lived in Thailand. So that was like two parallels, right? Because completely different countries. But at the same time, my dad was really successful, a business man, a proper expat. You know, my school was paid for. We got two flights home, like to Denmark every year. Rent was paid, everything. But my mom was, you know, really struggling, was in debt. So I had that with my mom when I lived with her. We lived in a one-bedroom flat where we slept on a blow-up mattress. And my dad, we had a swimming pool and two cars. So I always had that complete parallel in my life, I think. Um, and I don't know if that's part of why I've always been quite keen on like helping and trying to fix things. And I think with the network, it was definitely that. I was just, it doesn't make sense. And I think at the time I was quite naive that I was like, you know, I'm 25. This doesn't happen anymore that, you know, men <laughs> rule the world or whatever you want to say, like it's a men's world. I just hadn't even thought that that was going to be something I would live through in my career because I'd heard about how it had been and even studying it. The cases were always, you know, when we study human rights and I did class in like justice, difference and equality, it was always focused on like factories in America and the rights of workers or something like that, where I was like, it's not going to happen within a media company in the UK. But I mean, I did experience it with when I launched this network and I went to the management and said, I think we should launch a network for women in education because they need a community to help get them to the top. I didn't even finish that sentence before I had men <laughs> talk over me and say it wouldn't add value because, again, it was focused on the money, I think. So, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting hearing you speak about the women or lack of women in the business side of education. So I'm curious, is that because the women that want to be in education are focused more on the delivery of education, the core philosophies of education as opposed to, let's just say, make money? Or is it because the men in the investment world don't really want that kind of influence to come in? I mean, I don't know. I'm sure we could talk about this for a couple of hours, but I'm just kind of curious from your experience, what is it? And why do women not want to go into the investment side of, of education or are they not being allowed into it? I think there's 
a couple of different reasons. So I think, first of all, you know, when you look at like schools and, and I guess who's teaching, there's a lot of women. That's not an issue. It's then moving up into the management role and, and the business side of things. And I think part of it is probably, you know, culture and societal expectations that you have to work really long hours, you know, you're always on call, all the classic, this is not unique to education, that's just business, right? Um, So I think that's one thing. Another thing which I always found really interesting when I was doing research, when I initially set up, is that men tend to, on the first day of their careers, right, especially in the corporate world, they will go to the pub after work and network, and hand out their business cards. And they're very confident doing that, even though the job title says intern, basically, right? Where women don't want to do that until they have the right job title on their business card. Because they want to make sure they ha- they add value to the network of communication, like conversation and the relationship. So that's one thing. And this, again, not unique to education. It's just standard men, women way of networking. And that's why what we, or I did in business women education was facilitate networking events, right? And I know for a fact business has come out of it and people have been hired because they met in a room and it was informal and they felt comfortable. But I think the investment side that you ask about, I think the main thing is just lack of role models because that's a a major thing, right? Like you need, if you work for a company where someone has had a family while they made it all the way to the top, at least you know, well, within that organization, I can do that as well. But if they're all men and they don't have children... (laughs) or they have a nanny and they're never home, then you're a bit like, well, I don't want that life. So maybe this is not for me. And I think that's a crucial thing. But I think that there are those different things. I mean, I don't know the answer because it's still an issue. If I knew the answer, I'd hope that I'd fixed it by now. <laughs> it's an interesting thing for people to at least like be aware of that there is some barrier between education professionals in terms of teachers and professors into the business side. But we know that there's benefits to having diverse management teams, right? They deliver better results, better, like the companies are better financially as well. Yet that's not, if you go to a lot of education companies' websites and look at the management team, they're not very diverse. And this is not just gender. Like, this is the thing. I'm, I'm very aware it's not just gender. But I was, in my head, I was like, I need to, you can't just do like, what, a network for diversity. That's very broad. And the gender thing to me was like, as I said, I never thought I'd experience it. And I did really early on. And that might be because growing up in Thailand, going to an international school with a very, from and from a privileged background, right? I never experienced any kind of discrimination because I was like the white girl with, the, with two cars in the swimming pool. So in my world, that was never a thing. And then going to university, I mean, I was always very, people thought I was really interesting because I grew up in Thailand, but I was white. So I don't know if that was just because I'd never experienced anything growing up. And then when I went into the corporate world and I was like, it's all men and, <laughs> and I can't even finish a sentence in a meeting. I thought that's a good place to start. And then the conversation is about diversity. It's not about gender, but at least you start somewhere. Absolutely. And I think it's admirable that that you you had the gumption to, to do this and to fight through the um, interruption in the middle of your sentence as you were trying to explain what you wanted to do and actually get it off the ground. The title of our podcast, as you know, is Destiny Benders, and it is about changing lives or bending destinies and people who have been in your life who have 
changed your destiny. Can you give an example or think of somebody that really stands out somewhere along this journey that you have had who has made such an impression on you, either that you've worked with or something they've said, you know, that person has really changed your destiny or changed your life um, to lead you to where you are today? Mm -hmm. I think one person is definitely my mom. And there's probably, I'm sure people say this a lot, but because as I mentioned, my parents split up when I was 10. And I then initially moved back to Denmark with her and we moved to Copenhagen, a school I didn't fit into at all. And I one day after school just turned to her and said, I want to go live with my dad. And she let me and I was 12 and my dad lived in Thailand. So it was far away. She knew at this point she'd see me two times a year. Right. And I'm very close with my mom. It wasn't that we didn't have a strong relationship. She's my best friend now. But the fact that she let me have that like autonomy over what I wanted to do. Right. And I think they went into it thinking, well, it might work. She might come back in three months. (laughs) Um, But that's definitely one, because I think going to an international school just made me who I am and gave me so much. I don't even know. I can't like put my finger to what it is that I gained from it. But I mean, I wouldn't have the life I have now if I hadn't gone to international school because I'd have stayed in Denmark, right? Like that's what most people do that I went to school with. Secondly, I think there's kind of three women that come to mind. So when I was setting up this Business Women Education Network, as I said, I didn't have that much support initially from the people around me. Um, And how I went about it was actually going to the, I made a list of the women in very senior roles in the private sector that I thought these are the ones if I get them to back me that's it like I'm successful <laughs> and I remember especially one so the CEO of Oxford International Education Group Lil at the time I'd never met her never and she was quite new in the role at the time and I just messaged her on LinkedIn and said I have this idea to start this network will you give me just 10 minutes and she did she invited me to her office and I basically said it to her and from that day she's backed me and Still now, you know, she's on WhatsApp. So if I ever have any issues, concerns, she takes the time in her very busy schedule as, you know, CEO of a big company with, and she has three children as well, to just say, it's fine, I'm here for you. Let me know if there's anything I can do. So I think she's definitely one. Um, And similarly, there's two other women that similar kind of thing back me from the beginning. There's Pam Mundy, who's an international education consultant. And she, the first time I ever met her was at an event and she said, I'd never be part of a women's network. It's just not for me. I think it's stupid. (laughs) She probably didn't say stupid, but you know that it's just putting women in one room and then you're making the gap even bigger. And I explained to her why I wanted to do it and how I wanted to do it. And she supported me and she's been massive support ever since. And then there's Anita Gleave as well, who's the CEO of Chatsworth Schools and they've just launched the international schools. And I don't know, with her, she's just a powerhouse. She's so honest that if you ever have concerns, she'll give you, like, she'll tell you (laughs) what you should do and whether you're being irrational or whatever. And I just think these women that are so successful and busy, the fact that they, I think, backed me when I was just a journalist coming to them saying, hey, I just started writing about international education and the sector and I realized it's very male dominated. Will you help me? And they're like, yeah, we will. And even to this day, you know, we'll be on WhatsApp when I need them. I think, and and I guess they gave me the confidence to then do it. And they still give me the confidence that I can do what I want and what I set out to do. 
That's that's awesome, Simone. On the flip side of it, and we also are always curious about the people that you've impacted. I know earlier on you talked a little bit about why you got into journalism because you thought you could change the world, and you know, and then you didn't find that in the human rights program and all the things that you did. But now, in your current role or just in your most recent role, do you feel like you're making a difference? You're impacting people's lives and changing their lives and bending their destinies? I mean, I don't want to say yes or no, but I hope so. I hope with the Business Women Education Network that at least, you know, I facilitated introductions that changed someone's career or the way that they look at the sector or, you know, gave them the role models that they need. And I've heard, you know, that people definitely have made connections and have been hired as a result of introductions that I've facilitated or, you know, events that I've hosted. And I'd like to think that I have like somehow made at least some people think about all of this and what the sector was looking like because in the beginning when I raised the issue or just you know said to people do you know any senior women in the sector that I could interview and I'd have these investors just kind of look at me and said it's really embarrassing but no I don't and I think I'd like to hope like I hope that at least that did make an impact and at least change how people think but I don't want to say yeah for sure or no I mean I'm only 28. Simone there are a lot of women who are listening to our podcast we know that there are women in international education around the world who are followers what advice would you give them if they wanted to do something similar or they're feeling in their community wherever it is that they are that a network would be of benefit to them and their colleagues how does how would you get started or what advice would you give them for, for starting something like this? I think I'd say just don't be shy because a lot of people are in the same boat. Most people are happy to have a chat and would love to be part of it. And that's what I think I found the most surprising was actually how many people wanted to. I mean, for our launch event in 2019, we had like 80 people show up. And this was before we'd done anything. We didn't even have a website. It was just me emailing people saying, hey. We're launching this. Come on. And they were all CEOs and like, you know, COOs of big companies. And we even got partners at private equity firms, which were really hard to track. Like it took a long time for me to even find them. Um, but I think it is just don't be shy. And like what I always like to say as well is like find your tribe because there will be a group of people that support you. And I think, as I said, with these women that I can look up to and they're like mentors for me, it's so helpful because if you have any issue, whether that's in your career or, you know, within the sector or you're, I don't know, looking for your next move, having those people around you where you can just drop them a text and say, hey, so this is happening. Can we jump on a call? Makes such a big difference. And I don't know to men as well, obviously, but I think men have that like, from very early on, as I said, because it's part of kind of how they network. Socializations. Um, yeah. It's yeah. great advice. With that, we'll just invite all of our listeners to reach out to you on LinkedIn to get that yeah. first network started. That's what I love LinkedIn. That's what I said yeah. like earlier. <laughs> I love LinkedIn because of the people you can connect with that you would never connect with in real life. And I mean, like, I'm now going to events post pandemic, right? And you meet people and you're like, oh, yeah. I've spoken to you on LinkedIn or like I commented on this post or, you know, people like that, that you would just never even have come across. 
And then maybe you would at an event, but what are the chances of you actually walking up to that one person and talking to them? It doesn't, I mean, what I've seen a lot at events, and it depends on the type of event, but especially in investment, is that there'll be those few tables of women standing, and then it's just men in black suits or dark, you know, navy as well, and sometimes dark gray. (laughs) But that's kind of the diversity you get in the room. Um, and the women then tend to, it's people they've already met because they're the same people that attend these events too, right? Like it's yeah. not that you get someone completely different. And I really try to bring new people into this the, like conversation and sector because also I think you can benefit from people tend to within sectors like international education get stuck within like the subsector or like the small area of the sector that you work in that you forget that like, you know, it's who you know, it's not what you know, is what people yeah. say. And I think that's so true that who knows, maybe one day you'll need a contact within an international school. But if you've like only ever hung out with that small crowd, then it's going to be a lot harder when that question comes up in a meeting or something. Does anyone know anyone who could help answer this question? Um, So I think that's probably the main thing. I love that saying like it's it's who you know, not what you know. And I think maybe that's a journalist (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like perspective, because obviously my job has always been asking other people what's going on and then writing reporting on that and not really having too much of an opinion which I mean has been a bit hard for me <laughs> well you know I'm, I'm sure especially on the investment side and all the things we could we could chat a lot more about that maybe that's for another podcast but keeping in mind the time you know we always try to wrap up our recordings with uh just to, on a lighter side, and we have quick fire questions that we ask. Uh, I'll go first. So, what are the 10 dogs you should know? <laughs> I can't even answer that because it was like, here's a dog eating breakfast, here's a dog on a fence, here's a dog. It was something really random like that. Like, it, I'm, it, I'm joking. Yeah. It was, and I spent two weeks doing that kind of thing. It was like oh, seven no. hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> I did write one, which is quite interesting, because then I wrote one that was completely my own. Um, and it was um, 10, th- was it 10 or 12 things about third culture children that you don't know about oh, or something yeah. like that. And that was, and it actually got like, I think it was like 600,000 clicks in two weeks or something. Yeah, what are, what are That's cool. three things? Tell us three things you should know about third culture kids that we don't know. Well, this is. I've got one. Cool. Don't ask them where they're from. Yeah, I think one that I said was the accent. Just accept that they're probably culturally confused and the same with language, that in their head, like the whole, what language do you dream in? Depends on the day. What was another one? I can't even remember. This was like seven years ago that I had to write this article and I don't even know if it's still out there. But um, I think an interesting one was always, it was something about food, that you're just a bit confused when it comes to food. Like I can eat rice for breakfast. My partner, who's English and has never lived anywhere else, is like, what are you doing? (laughs) Well, on that food note, my question for you was going to be, having lived so long in Thailand, what Thai dish food is your favorite? If you were to go back to Thailand or to Bangkok tomorrow, what would you head straight for to get? I think there's kind of like two sides. So there's market food. It's probably like sticky rice and mooping. So it's pork or fried rice. Mm. I just find like fried rice from like proper Thai fried rice is so hard to find. I actually have a thing when I go to Thai restaurants, like in the UK or anything, fried rice is the first thing I order. Cause I'm like, if they can do that in the right, cause it's so simple, right? So I'm like, if they can do fried rice, then it's good. It's good Thai food. 
Awesome. You're a journalist, so I'm sure you, in addition to writing, you read a lot. What would be your suggestion for a book to read right now? I really like the book. It's called Half the Sky. It's about um, women's rights, but very okay. it's two journalists. Um, I can't remember their names, but they're a couple. And they basically traveled around the world and wrote about um, yeah, girls' human rights and women's human rights in different cultures and in different parts of the world. And then, you know, it's very much through stories of individuals as well. So I quite... I think that's a really good book just to get an understanding of like what's going on around the world. Cause I think a lot of it, people just have no idea that thing. Yeah. Like my dissertation was about witchcraft and oh, how it still really happened. Tell us more. Tell us more. Um, um, yeah. So I, how did it come across? There was this um, Danish woman who lives in Nigeria and she basically saves children from the streets that have been, exiled from their villages because they think they're witches and I remember reading that there was this picture a few years ago and it was like all over social media and the news it was this boy who was just really malnourished and she had given him biscuits and and um, he was like two or three and I remember seeing that thinking like does this still happen and again probably that like privileged child that yeah I knew people didn't like kids didn't have money and I knew that some children didn't have an education but I didn't know that in some cultures, children are tortured because their parents think they're witches. And it can be as simple as like a mom's second pregnancy, a woman's second pregnancy is really tough or the birth is really tough. So they blame the first child. I wanted to do something about that. But at university, I couldn't I couldn't get any like ethics approved around interviewing children or women. And there was a like risk assessment if I wanted to travel to Nigeria. And they were like, there's no way. <laughs> the university is going to let you. So I did a normative one. So it was basically just around how do you balance the rights of a child's autonomy over the rights of parents' religion, right? So you have, as a, as a parent, you have the right to choose your child's religion and what religion you raise them in. So it was kind of balancing those two based on like, what is a religion? Yeah. <laughs> could, could, we, wow. could we ask you to write a book? On that topic, you, you seem really passionate about that. I don't think I can. I mean, I don't, I don't think I can write a book, you know. I'm not. So this is the thing about journalism as well. Yeah, I still do. Like, I still call myself a journalist. But as I said, I haven't done proper journalism in about a couple of years because I kind of moved away from it slowly in my current role at the Pi. I don't, I'm not a reporter, right? I don't sit and write every day. And the thing about journalism I always liked was talking to people. Mm-hmm. So I like speaking at events and I like interviewing people and I like talking to people about their lives and hearing about, you know, what they're doing, why they're doing it and sharing what I do. But the writing was always something I just procrastinated and I would end up having like the last day. I mean, my dissertation, I'm sure I wrote it the last week. It's not a book, maybe a podcast. On the, I know, I mean, as, as you were, like, I mean, yeah. as yes, you were talking, I was thinking. Actually, it sounds like you'd be, what you want to be doing right now is doing a podcast, talking yeah. to people, listening, learning about their lives, sharing. Yeah, there you go, there you Simone. Go. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we ha- I have thought about it before. It was just never like you know. I guess it's that. When's the time? How do you do it? Figuring it all out. Yeah. Well, you're still very young, obviously. I know. <laughs> you know, I have to say, I mean, uh, I'm just inspired by you and, and I'm, I admire all the work that you've done so far and uh, uh, in such a short time. I mean, that's amazing. So I know. Uh, thank you for sharing that with us. This has been great. I wish you the best. Uh, more power thank to you. you. Yeah. Thank you.
Yeah. Thank you so much, Simone. It's been great chatting with you and getting to know you a little bit better. Thanks for having me. Next week on Destiny Benders, we're speaking with Marcus DeWitt, the founder and director of Blue Ivy Coaching in Mexico City, Mexico. Join us. Mm-hmm.